service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock-a-rolla. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Anna Nicole Smith are insane. Her curves caused one country to nearly declare her a threat to public safety. She was investigated by the FBI for an alleged murder plot against her 60-year-old stepson. Her real son, Daniel, died mysteriously from a toxic combination of prescription medications. She died only a few months later under equally strange circumstances. Her career defied definition. She was a Playboy bunny, a model, and a reality TV star rolled into one femme fatale. She ascended from the stages of Houston strip clubs to the world stage seemingly overnight, and fell from grace just as fast. But before she succumbed to eternal beauty rest, Anna Nicole Smith made, well, she made films. Not great films, but she was in The Naked Gun 33 and a third. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Clara Smith and her jazz trio performing Death Letter Blues in 1924. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Brian Robbins' Norbit. And why would I play you that specific slice of multiple Eddie Murphy's cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on February 5th, 2007. And that was the day Anna Nicole Smith checked into room 607 at the Hard Rock Hotel and never checked out. On this episode, threats to public safety, alleged murder plots, death under strange circumstances, and the woman whose career defied definition, Anna Nicole Smith. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season seven, Hollywoodland. thought the whole scene was ugly as sin. 
She dragged the exotic dancer by her neck, first off the stage and then out the front door of the strip joint. The dancer entered the back seat of the cruiser with the grace of a newborn fawn. All she was missing was a pair of handcuffs. Well, that and a pair of decent pants to hide her G-string. But the cop didn't slap any cuffs on her. She hadn't committed a crime, yet. The dancer's name changed depending on her shift. Some called her Robin or Nikki. With the cop driving her scantily clad ass home tonight, knew her as Vicki Lynn Smith, her daughter. Deputy Sheriff Virgie Hart didn't raise her children to flaunt their bodies for money. Vicki Lynn, on the other hand, thought she earned a decent, honest living just like everybody else, thank you very much. She just happened to do it with no clothes on. Her mother disagreed. Honest work meant putting on your sheriff's deputy's badge every morning and protecting the good citizens of the great state of Texas. It also meant keeping your teenage daughter off the pole. Vicki Lynn sank into the back seat in defeat. The lights of Houston nightlife reflected in her stripper heels, another job down the drain. Just like Red Lobster and Walmart, and Jim's crispy fried chicken too. Vicki Lynn's first job after she dropped out of high school. That gig at Jim's crispy fried chicken wasn't a complete waste at least. It gave her a husband and a baby boy in just one year. First came the fellow dropout and fry cook she fell in love with and married. Then came Daniel, their baby boy born when Vicky Lynn was only 18 years old. As it turned out, Billy was a bully and Vicky Lynn split after barely a year into their marriage. But Daniel, Daniel was her whole world. Daniel was also why she needed steady work so badly. She had two mouths to feed and zero special skills and no GED. Vicky Lynn didn't need a diploma to tell her the math was stacked against her when it came to employment. But maybe she could squeeze out a few bucks from men looking for women who were, well, stacked. Her new vocation called to her like a siren from the side of the road in Houston, a voluptuous woman outlined in neon rising from the partial Texas soil. And the woman rocked on her tiptoes back and forth in her sky-high heels, her smile as pearly white as a bikini clinging to her curves. It was an advertisement for the Executive Club, a gentleman's bar in Houston. It was a sign Vicki Lynn needed, literally. Her shifts at Red Lobster and Walmart brought home nearly $50 a week. Vicky could earn that amount dancing in a single evening. Now she was gonna earn diddly squat thanks to her mother. Virgie threatened to come into the executive club every night and make trouble if the owner didn't take Vicky off stage that very moment. Vicky couldn't believe it. That lady in the white bikini up on the sign probably never had to deal with shit like this. But everything is bigger in Texas, especially the gentlemen's club business. There were plenty of other joints to choose from. There was Puzzles and Gigi's on the north side of town. Ritzier joints like Baby O's and the Colorado Club over in Southwest Houston too. Vicky Lynn's mind was made up before she could even peel her ass in the backseat of the cruiser's upholstery. She was gonna pack her baby boy into her car and leave home for good. If her mama didn't want her making a good living to provide for her son, then Vicky Lynn didn't want to stick around. Stripping was here to stay. You can hang your hat on that, at least until Vicky Lynn met her future husband. She was just about everything a Texas man wanted. Tall, tantalizing, buxom, maybe too buxom. Buxom was bad for business at the best known gentlemen's club in Houston. They liked their ladies stick thin like the other it girls in 1991. That meant Vicky Lynn Smith wouldn't be taking any evening shifts at Gigi's. She could entertain the sad sacks who haunted the place each afternoon instead. Sad sacks like oil tycoon J. Howard Marshall. 
Vicky Lynn spotted the elderly gentleman wilting in his wheelchair. She moved across the stage in his direction with a little twinkle in her green eyes. He smiled back reluctantly. The song on the PA, The Lady in Red, did all the talking. J. Howard Marshall wasn't just lonesome these days. He was despondent. He'd lost his wife to Alzheimer's. That was the first hit. Then his young girlfriend on the side died on the operating table while getting a facelift. Now he was a bona fide billionaire with no one to spoil. He wouldn't be lonely for long. The oil baron invited Vicky Lynn to lunch the next day and slid an envelope stuffed with cash across the table. He told her she'd never have to work again. And Vicky Lynn graciously accepted the gift. She accepted a lot of gifts from J. Howard Marshall. A Rolls Royce, multi-million dollar trips to the Neiman Marcus jewelry counter, a 15-acre ranch in Texas complete with Arabian horses. And there was one gift Vicky Lynn wanted to share with the world, her $14,000 breast augmentation, now sized up with classic American bombshells like Marilyn, Jane Mansfield, and Pamela Anderson. Vicky Lynn boasted the kind of figure that was far too fine for just a few lonely faces at a time. Forget the horny cowboys in Houston, they could keep their stick-thin it girls. Vicky Lynn was ready for a much bigger close-up. She didn't tell Playboy she used to be a stripper. Playboy liked their girls, quote-unquote, fresh, or whatever the fuck that meant. She mailed the magazine a handful of nude photographs and was on the cover of the March 1992 issue before you could say double Ds. Two months later, she was Miss May. The centerfold could barely contain her busty profile. And Vicky Lynn's curves transcended the laws of physics. They transcended the limits of mere playmate fame, too. Guest Jean saw Vicky Lynn's naked photos and begged her to put their pants on. Claudia Schiffer was out as the face of the brand, and Vicky Lynn was in. Unlike the waifish models of the early 1990s, Vicky Lynn actually filled out the jeans. Supersized billboards of her supersized curves spread across the country, across other continents. Dig this tall new glass of Texas tea. In Norway, her billboards even caused enough of an uptake in car accidents that the government nearly declared them a threat to public safety. Vicky Lynn had the body. Now she needed the personal brand. Her name was a little too small town for her trajectory. Instead, the founder of Guess crowned her Anna Nicole Smith. By the end of 1993, Anna Nicole was named Playboy's Playmate of the Year. It was among the most coveted of titles for bunnies and budding stars. And Anna Nicole Smith was both. Now that she had elevated herself from stripper to socialite, she accepted a marriage proposal from J. Howard Marshall and the 22-carat diamond ring that came with it. Her new husband was over 60 years her senior. The scandal of their marriage fanned America's fascination with their newest object of desire. Anna Nicole crept closer to Hollywood as the tabloids tore apart her unorthodox love life. She accepted small roles in movies like To the Limit and The Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, The Final Insult. None of these movies developed Anna Nicole as an artist. No one referred to her as the actress Anna Nicole Smith. She was just a sex symbol who was famous for being famous and for becoming famous overnight at that. That was the funny thing about fame. It could catapult femme fatales onto global billboards and big screens in the blink of an eye, but it could also crush them into fatalities just as fast.
Mark Hatton repeated his response to the feds. No, he would not wear a wire around his ex-girlfriend, Anna Nicole Smith. Final answer. Could it provide evidence for the case? Yes. Would it be a sweet dose of revenge for her breaking it off with him? Fuck yes. But Mark still wasn't doing it, so no. Fuck the feds. Mark Hatton knew what was true, and that was all that mattered. His then-girlfriend, Anna Nicole, asked him to kill her stepson. Technically, technically anyways, he was her stepson. But dude was 60 years old. 60 years old. But he was her rival. When J. Howard Marshall croaked in 1995, the buck quite literally stopped right there. Anna Nicole wasn't even in her late husband's will. That 60-year-old stepson got all 1.6 billion. Anna Nicole would just have to settle for the $12 million worth of gifts she received during her late husband's lifetime. However, Anna Nicole Smith wasn't settling. Bigger was better after all, and that went for what she felt she was owed. Her lawsuit over her dead husband's will wasn't just a battle, it was a years-long war. And by June of 2000, it had reached a feverish high. So feverishly high that Anna Nicole just needed Mark Hatton to take care of it or at least find someone who could discreetly resolve her problem. Mark refused. Maybe a modern Marilyn Monroe could manipulate men into just about anything, but murder was out of the question. She would have to fend for herself. And so would the feds. The FBI knocked on Anna Nicole's door on July 3rd, 2000. She gave her statement. No, she would never even think of arranging an atrocious thing like murder. She was innocent. Even if the 357 Smith & Wesson and stainless steel knife retrieved from her home suggested otherwise. And without any ironclad proof of a murder plot, thanks to Mark's refusal to wear a wire, the FBI abandoned the case in April of 2001. But Mark still had his suspicions. Not about Anna Nicole, about Howard K. Stern. Hold up. I'm not talking about the Howard Stern that you all know, the shock jock turned king of all media. I'm talking about Howard K. Stern. Anna Nicole's weird lawyer pal. He was most definitely not a cutting edge radio personality. But Mark still suspected Howard K. Stern might have something shocking up his sleeve. Because first of all, who chums around with their lawyer? But more importantly, Mark got the sense that Howard wanted him out of the picture. Like a jealous boyfriend pushing away competitors. Howard gave Mark two pills once and claimed they're aspirin. Yeah, right. Aspirin doesn't knock you unconscious for 24 hours straight. So if Howard K. Stern Anna Nicole Smith's friend was giving Mark, her ex-boyfriend, those kinds of pills. What the fuck was he giving Anna Nicole? Daniel Smith struggled to make eye contact with the detective. He stared out the window of Patty's restaurant, an all-day breakfast joint in Toluca Lake, California. It didn't seem like anyone had followed him, not yet at least. Steam curled from Daniel's coffee. He didn't order any food, he had no appetite. Here he was, meeting a detective at an inconspicuous diner, just like they did in the movies. This shit could be in a James Bond flick, maybe even the naked gun. Except there was nothing funny about what Daniel needed to divulge about his mother. He locked eyes with Jack Harding, the detective sitting across the table. Harding knew all about Anna Nicole Smith. I mean, in 2006, who didn't? Her early aughts TV show, The Anna Nicole Show, gave the world an inside look at her inner circle, complete with that ditzy commentary. Sometimes her voice slurred for no apparent reason. Other times she put on a squeaky baby voice, just like the one she created during her exotic dancer days. And the Anna Nicole Smith Show earned E! record-setting ratings when it debuted in 2002 to over 7.5 million viewers. 
It was the largest reality TV debut at the time. The Bubblegum Pop theme song introduced the cast. There was Anna Nicole, Daniel, then a teenager, her assistant Kim, her dog Sugar Pie, and Howard K. Stern, title Lawyer. He got higher billing than poor Sugar Pie. It all disappeared as fast as it came, went the theme song. And that's exactly what Daniel was worried about. These days, his mother wasn't just ditzy. Daniel thought she was drugged and not by her own accord. It was all Howard's fault, Daniel said. That lawyer who thought he could play doctor. Daniel claimed Howard fed Anna Nicole quote-unquote mind-bending drugs to keep her in a daze. He hovered around her with what friends called a goodie bag, brimming with pills to provide for Anna Nicole as needed. Close friends said they had seen Howard give Anna Nicole Valium, Vicodin, even morphine. Daniel leaned in over the table to deliver the kicker. He suspected Howard was doing this every day, probably right at this moment, even though Anna Nicole was pregnant. Anna Nicole and her baby bump were laying low in the Bahamas, living in a rental home with Howard. The baby daddy was TBA or TBD. Even Daniel wasn't sure. But right now he had no direct line of communication with his mother. Howard hung up on Daniel every time he called. Other loved ones claimed they got the brush off from Howard too. Jack Harding leaned back in his chair as Daniel stated his case. It was the perfect setup for a Svengali. Anna Nicole was overseas and unreachable. Soon Daniel's newborn baby sister would be caught up in this mess too. So the clock was ticking. Daniel needed proof that his mother was in danger. Shit, he could even be in danger himself if he was meddling in Howard's affairs like this. And that's where Harding could step in and gather some evidence. Harding put all his cards on the table. He would take the case, but he needed $300 an hour, plus some dough for airfare and lodging. No money, no deal. Daniel didn't have the money for a down payment on anything. He had just enough to buy himself a plane ticket to the Bahamas. So Daniel would just do it himself. He really should have waited. He should have sent Jack Harding. Anna Nicole Smith was wailing from her hospital bed. No more sugary baby talk. Now it was just howls of pain. Anna Nicole's newborn daughter was perfectly healthy and sleeping in the nursery. Her 20-year-old son, Daniel, was not. She crowded at the foot of the hospital bed and tugged on her son's limp leg. Doctors scattered around the scene. He's not breathing. Can we resuscitate him? Clear. Hospital staff moved the second hospital bed from the room to make room for more doctors with more medical equipment and even more questions. No matter how many people crowded inside the room, no one could get Anna Nicole to budge. She clung to her son and pleaded for Jesus to take her instead. But her savior had already made up his mind. Daniel Smith was dead. Anna Nicole's last evening with her son was blissful, simple, private. Nothing like those days when a camera followed them around for reality TV fodder. When Daniel's plane touched down in the Bahamas in September of 2006, Anna Nicole had already delivered her new baby sister via C-section and was recovering in her hospital room. Howard accompanied Anna Nicole to the hospital, naturally. He and Daniel played nice for the occasion. While Anna Nicole and Daniel binged late night reality TV, Howard picked up a dinner of fried chicken strips for the family. That's when Daniel started to feel winded. No one thought anything of it. Sudden exhaustion was easy to blame on jet lag. Everyone passed out after a greasy feast. Anna Nicole and Daniel shared one hospital bed and Howard curled up on the other. Only two of them woke up the next morning. Daniel was declared dead at 10.05 a.m. on September 6th, 2006. The case baffled doctors. 
Healthy 20-year-olds didn't just drop dead in their sleep, especially when they had access to celebrity-level healthcare. Without a clear cause of death, Bahamian law mandated an autopsy. Medical examiners couldn't find anything. No alcohol, no cocaine, no opiates, no amphetamines. Instead, investigators placed the blame on a toxic combination of Lexapro, Zoloft, and Methadone. Only two-thirds of that checked out. Daniel had prescriptions for Lexapro and Zoloft, which are both commonly used to treat depression and anxiety. Daniel didn't have a heroin problem, so he didn't have a prescription for methadone. But Anna Nicole did. In fact, someone had methadone on them the night Daniel died. Investigators found two pills tucked into the bed Howard used during his stay. The same one they pulled into the hallway to make more room for the doctors rushing to revive Daniel. One was a muscle relaxant. The other was methadone. And in Daniel's shirt pocket, investigators found something else, a business card for Detective Jack Harding. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Imagine for a moment, you're one of the most beautiful women in the world, an undeniable 10, five feet, 11 inches tall, Blonde locks cascade down your elegant neckline and pull everyone's gaze to your 41-inch bust, double Ds at least, with 700 milliliters of fluid in each. Your slim 26-inch waist struggles to keep all that weight upright. Your spine, it has to actively work against the force of gravity that threatens to topple you over. Keeping your head high and your shoulders back, it's actual work. The weight of your body's beauty yanks on your shoulder blades begging you to bend over and snap like a pretty little twig. Not that Anna Nicole Smith was anything close to a twig. There's literal weight to being one of the great beauties of the world. Marilyn felt it. Anna Nicole Smith was saddled with a similar burden. If she was gonna stand tall during photo shoots with her implants, she was gonna need a little reinforcement, like Vicodin or Xanax. The prescriptions started coming in the mid-90s and never stopped. Anna Nicole couldn't afford to stop. It wasn't just the implants. Her body cramped up with discomfort every day. Restless leg syndrome, insomnia, seizures, migraines. Name a body part and it probably hurt like hell. Anna Nicole famously asked, like my body, as a spokeswoman for Trim Spa in the early aughts. And in reality, her hot bod was a hot spot for misery. In the Bahamas, nannies claimed Anna Nicole took pills and paper cups every day. Six to 10 pills per cup, one cup, every four hours, a grand total of 24 different prescriptions at once. The weaker Anna Nicole became, the more pills she was prescribed. It wasn't about being high, it was about the absence of pain, the absence of all that weight. Anna Nicole Smith would do anything to shrug off that weight. February 5th, 2007, Hollywood, Florida. Anna Nicole Smith's head rolled against the back seat of the limo. Her legs were jelly. America's blonde bombshell looked ready to detonate. Her longtime bodyguard lifted her out of the limo and carried her inside the Hard Rock Hotel. She was checked into her usual $1,600 a night suite under her usual alias, Fred and Wilma Flintstone. But nothing else about her stay at the Hard Rock Hotel would be usual. She was in Florida to pick up her new yacht, a 39-footer she had christened The Cracker. In addition to Howard and her bodyguard, Anna Nicole's psychiatrist and personal nurse rounded out her crew. She needed a crew, not just to pick up a boat, but to keep herself from capsizing. 
In the months after Daniel's death, she floated between the bed and the couch every day in a numb, drowsy rut. There was the grief, and there was also the 24 different prescriptions she allegedly juggled. The pain just wouldn't ease up. It likely stemmed from her daily injection of B12 and human growth hormones that supposedly kept her energy high and her body fat low. So much for Trim Spa. By the time she reached room 607 at the Hard Rock, her body was boiling with 105 degree fever. You don't sweat out a fever that severe. You're more likely to die. But Anna Nicole knew what happened the last time she was in a hospital room. The memory of Daniel's final night would have chilled her to the bone if she wasn't burning up so badly. Daniel's absence burdened Anna Nicole every day. His death was the latest addition to the pile of weight she balanced every day. The weight of her body, the weight of the tabloids poking and prodding into her life yet again. Another trip to the hospital meant more intrusion and media attention. More attention meant more weight. Anna Nicole couldn't take any more weight. She felt to press her into the mattress in the master bedroom. The springs threatened to give way. It felt like she could sink through the bed, then the floor, then through every story below her until she landed with a thud at rock bottom. Even though it felt like she'd already found rock bottom right here, right now, in room 607. It all disappeared as fast as it came. Anna Nicole made a decision from the depths of her stupor. No hospitals, no ambulances, absolutely nothing to draw attention. Her team created a different treatment. Her bodyguard sunk Anna Nicole's feverish body into a bath of ice and cold water. Her psychiatrist recommended some Tamiflu and a potent antibiotic. But there was another drug that was sure to help Anna Nicole safely slip into dreamland tonight. Chlorohydrate, AKA knockout drops. A popular sedative in the 1930s, not so much in 2007. It was an odd choice. Almost as odd was the dosage, 5,000 milligrams, 10 times more than the recommended dosage. Anna Nicole was in fact knocked out by the drops not long after 10 p.m. And it worked, sort of. So her team kept the chlorohydrate coming. She took more 5,000 milligram doses on Tuesday in between violent vomiting and diarrhea. Debris now polluted the posh suite, vomit caked in the bathroom sink, soiled towels on the floor. Anna Nicole's nightstand was a graveyard of soda cans and SlimFast, mixed with discarded packs of gum, Nicorette, and jars of Pedialyte. She was borderline infantile. Her weak, babyish body matched her baby voice. She crawled around like a toddler. On Wednesday, her bodyguard found her naked in the bathtub, minus the bathwater. It felt like something worth mentioning to the shrink, but the doc had already returned to the real Hollywood earlier that day. Despite the number of people around her, no one on her team would say for sure if Anna Nicole took more chlorohydrate Wednesday evening. And they didn't need to. The autopsy results would reveal everything. Thursday, February 8th, 2007. No one could understand why Howard K. Stern wouldn't pipe the fuck down. He delegated with authority. Howard, the bodyguard, and the new captain of the Cracker would pick up Anna Nicole's yacht at noon. Her nurse and the captain's wife would stay with Anna Nicole in the meantime. That plan was well and good, but it was also kind of loud. Howard had been nothing but overprotective and considerate for the past 24 hours. He slept by Anna Nicole's side all night on Wednesday. On Thursday afternoon, Howard ordered the bodyguard and nurse to fetch the yacht captain and his wife from the airport specifically so he could remain by Anna Nicole's side. But now, out of the blue, he wanted to split? And he couldn't even muster a whisper while Anna Nicole got some rest in bed. 
There was no time to argue with Howard's inconsistencies. It was yacht o'clock at Royal Palm Yacht Basin, six miles from the Hard Rock Hotel. The three men were out the door before anyone could protest, and there was only one problem. Howard had no reason to rush. The appointment was for 1 p.m., not for noon. The captain's wife knew something was wrong from the look on Anna Nicole Smith's face. It was her mouth. Her lips were frozen in an O shape. Was that a sigh of relief or a gasp of terror? The captain's wife tried to force Anna Nicole's stiff jaw shut. Rigor mortis wasn't having it. She cried out to the nurse for help, and the woman ripped the heavy comforter away from Anna Nicole's body. The purple splotches all over her face and body were easy to spot. She was buck naked, but she never slept naked. She collected oversized t-shirts so she never had to sleep naked. Stop it. There was no time to overanalyze. The nurse pounded on Anna Nicole's chest to perform CPR on bed, and the captain's wife tweaked Anna Nicole's toes and waited for a reaction. Nothing. Now was the time to raise their voices. They screamed and cried for Anna Nicole to do something, anything. They splashed water on her face. They pulled back Anna Nicole's eyelids, and they ran their hands over Anna Nicole's body for a Reiki ritual. They tried everything. Everything except calling 911. 12.44 p.m., the nurse rings the bodyguard. Not once, but four times. 1.22 p.m., the bodyguard calls the nurse. 1.24 p.m., the bodyguard calls Howard. 1.26 p.m., Howard calls the bodyguard. 1.31 p.m., the bodyguard dials the hotel liaison. Then Howard calls the bodyguard four times in three minutes. It wasn't until 1.38 p.m. that anyone bothered to call emergency services. Anna Nicole's warm body grew colder and stiffer over the course of nearly an hour. By the time police and first responders arrived, there was little they could do for Anna Nicole aside from send her to the hospital. And all the hospital could do was pronounce her dead at 2.49 p.m. Alone at the Hard Rock Hotel, Howard crouched down in the hallway and covered his face with his hands. Somehow, he had more calls to make. He rang Trim Spa, an attorney, and Entertainment Tonight, in that order. MSNBC aired three hours of coverage surrounding Anna Nicole's death that day. The news claimed she collapsed. Bullshit. Anna Nicole didn't fall or faint suddenly. She was tucked away in bed when she died, weakened, deflated, defeated. Anna Nicole didn't collapse that day. The weight piling on top of her did. We'll never know whether or not it was an accident. We can't say a doctor was negligent or if a peer had nefarious intentions, but we can pinpoint the blame on one thing for certain, chloral hydrate. These knockout drops can be deadly if they react with the wrong combination of chemicals found in prescription drugs. Chloral hydrate and a little carelessness is a killer that steals stars overnight. At least that's what the toxicology report said. Marilyn Monroe died of an acute barbiturate poisoning courtesy of a deadly dose of chloral hydrate in Nembatol. That's right, chlorohydrate was also in Marilyn Monroe's body when she died. For more details on that, check out our two-part episode on Norma Jean from season one of Badlands, but I digress. And chlorohydrate was also swimming in Anna Nicole's system when she was whisked away on her gurney on February 8th, 2007. 
Investigators found a pharmacy of pills in room 607 at the Hard Rock Hotel. 11 different prescriptions tucked in dresser drawers on the nightstand and in Howard's so-called goodie bag. Nine medications were in Anna's body when she died, all of them from her own prescriptions. All except one. The name on the bottle of chlorohydrate was Howard K. Stern. Not only was the chlorohydrate not hers, she'd been taking 10 times the normal dose for 37 days before her death. And maybe the ritual would have continued if a crazy cocktail of drugs during a feverish haze hadn't pushed her over the edge. Two blonde bombshells, two deadly doses, the same sudden tragedy. It's a coincidence so uncanny, it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. 